0: If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn once again to 1 Corinthians 15. Our text this morning is a continuation of the chapter of which our scripture reading came from. It is the end of this well known chapter on the resurrection. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 50 until the end of the chapter, verse 58. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that You would set our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is none like Him. He alone, O Lord, is the Savior of all mankind. You have chosen Your people from every tongue and tribe and nation, And set your love upon them. You have redeemed them through the work of Jesus Christ, your Son. You have applied that salvation, O Father, by the work of your Spirit. And so we ask this morning that you would remind us of how much we owe you. And how blessed we are by you. This we ask. In Christ's precious name. Amen. It is typical on Easter to focus on the resurrection, but it should be our focus every Sunday. The Lord's Day is a reminder that Jesus is risen. The resurrection is the culmination of the work of our Savior. It is why He came into the world. We've been seeing that in the Gospel of John these past few weeks. That God the Son Himself became man, took on flesh, and that He did so with a purpose to redeem sinners and to make them into the children of God. We saw John the Baptist announce this very thing when he declared, as he saw Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now, in this marvelous chapter of the resurrection, Paul describes the accomplishment of Jesus' work. The victory is won. All that was lost by Adam has been regained by Jesus. Our text today is the conclusion of Paul's declaration about the centrality of the resurrection to our faith. Paul calls it of first importance. And he says that if Christ is not raised, then your faith is in vain. Unless Christ is raised, you are still in your sins. But thanks be to God, Jesus is raised. And so we have hope. We have joy. We have life in Christ. So let's be blessed this morning by Paul as we see three things about the resurrection in our text. First, Paul gives us an explanation of the resurrection. Paul explains what the resurrection is all about and what it will look like. And then second, Paul gives us encouragement from the resurrection. The resurrection is an encouragement to you and to me as we live our lives now in light of it. And then finally... Paul gives us an exhortation from the resurrection. He gives us a calling to live based upon what Jesus has done. An explanation, an encouragement, and an exhortation of the resurrection. Well, let's start then by looking at Paul's explanation of the resurrection. He begins to describe this change, and the first thing about this change that we see is that it is a necessary change. Now, you may notice that this chapter is a long chapter. It's 58 verses. And Paul, in it, explains to us in several ways the nature of the resurrection. First, in the first 11 verses, Paul begins with the fact Of Jesus' resurrection. And then, following that, in verses 12 through 34, he connects the resurrection of believers with Jesus' resurrection. And then, in the passage that was read early in our service, from verses 35 to 49, he describes the nature of the resurrection body. And in doing so, he uses several analogies or pictures to help us to understand. And now, as he concludes, he wants to make sure that we understand. You could see that in his opening phrase, I tell you, brothers. He speaks directly to us. And again in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. This is like Paul saying, Listen. Listen up. Get this now. I want you to pay attention. But this is not just about gaining information. No, it's for the benefit of those that he loves. That's why he specifically breaks in here and he calls us brothers. Now, what is this mystery that Paul will tell us about in verse 51? Now, when we think about the word mystery, we think of something that we don't know that we can't know, but that somehow we desperately want to know. You might think, for example, about how on earth did Stonehenge get set up? You know, all of those stones of great weight, seemingly far heavier than the technology of the time could move, put in a certain place, in a perfect way, with a design. How did that happen? We don't ever expect to know the answer to that. Or maybe you might think of the famous crop circles that appear in certain places in Nebraska or in Iowa. And we wonder, why these designs? What's going on here? Did someone get up in the middle of the night and try to make these designs? Is there some purpose, some message behind them? Well, don't hold your breath waiting. Because we probably won't ever find out the answer to that mystery either. But that's not how the Bible uses the word mystery. The Bible uses the word mystery to describe something that is beyond human invention. Beyond something that we could come up with. It is hidden, but now God has revealed it. That's the mystery of the resurrection now. We could never have come up with this idea of the resurrection. But God is now revealing it to us. It was hidden, but now Paul is going to explain the resurrection for us. Why it is happening. Why it is the way it is. And so first, we see that the resurrection is necessary because of the blessings that we will receive in it. When Jesus was Conducting his ministry, as we read in the Gospels, his main message was that the kingdom of God was at hand. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 6 that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything else will follow after that. The book of Acts ends with the same message. Paul is at Rome And at the end of chapter 28 of Acts, we are told that Paul preached the kingdom of God. And he did so without hindrance. So that is the message that Jesus and the apostles and Paul have for us. And now what Paul says is that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, when Paul talks about our flesh and blood... He's referring to our physical body. It's not our sinful nature, as Paul will often speak of the flesh alone. No, the idea here is is that our body, our flesh, our humanity in which we live cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Because the body that we have is tainted by sin. Now... We experience that. You've heard me say this before, but it's so true. We know our body is tainted by sin every morning that we wake up. We have trick knees, and tennis elbows, and migraines, and scratches, and pains. And every day we realize that our bodies are not perfect. But there's even more than that. Our bodies tainted by sin, were not designed for the incorruptible, the immortal kingdom of God. You might think about it this way. If you've ever gone diving in the Caribbean or in the ocean in that beautiful clear water, you know that you can go down some length, not just by having a snorkel, but by having a scuba tank. You can have oxygen come into your mouth from a tank, and you can go down low. But you do realize, even though you have a tank filled with oxygen, you can't go to the bottom of the ocean. Because if you try to go down to the very bottom of the ocean, you will die. Your body will be crushed by the pressure. You need special equipment, a special suit, in order to go down to the depths of the ocean. You might think about it this way. What about astronauts? Have you ever seen these astronauts, men and women, who train for years, who fly the fastest planes, faster than the speed of sound, and who go through rigorous training and health checks, and they come out to go into space, and as they come out, they look like the Michelin Man. They're dressed in these gigantic, white, puffy suits. Why? Well, that's because you can't take your body into space. It won't survive. You need a protective suit. And so in a similar way, what Paul is telling us is that our body, our physical body now, our corruptible body cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's not fit for it. What we need is to have our bodies changed. Because our bodies are not what they were meant to be. They are affected by the fall. They are perishable, Paul says in verse 53. They are wasting away. They are not right for eternity because they are not eternal. And so God has prepared for His children new bodies. They are imperishable. That is, they are unable to be destroyed. They are immortal. That is, eternally blessed, even as God is. For Jesus to complete his work of salvation, we must be changed. But Paul also gives us comfort that all in Christ will be changed. This change, this glorious change, is universal. There is no grading of believers in Christ. There are no tiers of believers. It's not that some will be in the kingdom of God and some will not. It's not that some will have eternal bodies and others will not. No, it's not that some are favored by God and others are not. No. Not even death itself can stop God's plan. Paul knew that one day Jesus would return. He didn't know when. No man knows that day, the Scripture tells us. But he knew that none would be left behind. Do you see how Paul puts it in verse 51? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, no matter how long ago believers in Christ have died, they will be changed All means all. And so Paul's word here is to comfort and instruct us. His original audience, the Corinthians, did not understand what was going on in the wake of the resurrection. They were afraid that those who had died would somehow miss out on the return of Christ that they needed to stay alive until the day of Jesus' coming in order to be ushered into the kingdom of God. And Paul says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. We'll all be changed. We who are alive will be caught up with Christ and the dead will rise and all will be changed and have an incorruptible, immortal body. Now this truth is for us today. All of us have loved ones we miss. All of us long to see them again. Have sure hope. Because all means all. This is a promise from Jesus. All who have died in Christ will be changed. All who are left behind will be taken up and changed. It's universal. And this change is also not a process, but rather it's immediate. You see, we are used to slow changes in our bodies. This usually occurs when someone comes and visits our family after having been away for many years. They come and they look at our children and they say, I didn't know your son was so big. I didn't realize that your daughter was so grown up. And we think to ourselves, they haven't changed at all. Because we've just been seeing that slow, imperceptible change day upon day. But someone who hasn't seen them for five years or seven years can say, wait a minute, you can't tell me that eight years ago your son had a beard. I don't believe it. He was eight. You can't tell me that your daughter was that tall ten years ago. No. You see... We see it also in our own lives, and our own bodies. As we grow older, our bodies break down slowly. Now, I am actually thankful for that. That not everything on me breaks down all at once at one day. That God is letting me kind of glide my path down through the ages. But when Paul talks about this change that will come about, he actually uses the smallest period of time possible. In a moment, he says. Now lest we miss this, I'm going to let you in on this Greek word. It's a Greek word that you'll know because it's a Greek word that is the equivalent of our English word, atom. Now if you don't know it, the reason we get the word atom, A-T-O-M, is because at the time scientists thought this was the smallest unit of existence that there was. The word atom literally means you can't cut it. You can't Break it down. There's no half of an atom. There's no quarter of an atom. Now, we know now that scientists with more powerful microscopes can see even smaller things. But you get the principle here. And Paul's applying it to time, not to matter. He says, in a moment, in the smallest possible time, you can't even say half a moment, a quarter of a moment, a tenth of a moment. It doesn't exist. It's just bang. And there it is. You can't make it any smaller or put it into any parts. And just in case you missed it, he gives us another picture. He says, in the twinkling of an eye. Now what this means is it's not some sort of special look or glance. No, what it describes is the shortest movement of the eye, the most rapid eye movement possible, the twinkling of an eye. Do you see what Paul's saying here? It is instantaneous. You don't need to wait for it. You don't need to measure your progress in resurrection against someone else. You don't need to be disturbed because someone else is being resurrected faster than you. No, all instantaneously are changed. Oh, for the day when we will be made as we should be. When all the slow work of sanctification will be done in an instant. When we will be like Jesus. There'll be no more waiting then. You'll be changed. You'll be as you were meant to be. In a twinkling of an eye. In a moment. The last way that Paul describes this change is that it is eternal That is, there is no going back. He says that the trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. That is, there is no going back from this moment. Now, that is one of the great challenges of the Christian life, isn't it? That we can go backwards at times. We fall back into patterns of sin that we hate. We forget to take advantage of God's means of grace. But not in the resurrection. There's no going back. When the trumpet sounds, the angels come forth, and Christ will come, and we will be changed forever. Now, Paul wants you to know this now, before it happens. Now is the day to trust Jesus. Now is the day to receive the forgiveness of sins by faith. Because there will come a day when it is too late. When the trumpet sounds and the dead rise, there will be no more opportunity. There will be no more excuses. There will be no more begging and pleading. There will be no more change or endeavor. Now is the time to embrace Jesus Christ. You are not promised tomorrow. Only the dead in Christ will experience this glorious change. So go to Jesus today. Paul then moves on to describe the result of the resurrection. He says that when this change has occurred, mortal puts on immortality. And then what the Lord has said will come to pass. Now the question then comes, what has God said? We might think Paul might talk about the blessings of eternity. Or a freedom from pain or shame. But there is something far more foundational that will happen. It was first predicted by the prophet Hosea in Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. Death itself will be devoured. It will be swallowed up. Death is swallowed up in victory, Paul says. Now, think about this. Think about the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. During that time, Jesus had many opponents. He had many enemies. And they tried to destroy Him. They tried to stop Him. But they could not. But then death itself came for Jesus. And to the disciples' dismay, it seemed that death won. Jesus died on the cross. He was put in the grave. He was lost. Can you imagine the pain, the discouragement, the confusion that the disciples had on that day? I think you can at some sense because we experience it every time someone close to us dies. But Jesus, he was supposed to be the ultimate victor, to defeat all enemies. What Paul tells us is that that is true, that Jesus defeated death, that death is no more. Jesus put to death all his enemies. He put all his enemies under his feet, including death, which is the last enemy. Jesus destroyed death. He obliterated it. He invalidated it. What we so fear, what we so hate, what we so try to avoid is no more. Death had always seemed to win. Everyone we know dies, we expect to die. So much so that we think death is natural. But it's not. We have to remember that death is an intruder. Death is a cheat. Death is a bully. And we no longer fear death because Jesus has won the victory. There is no more possible victory for death now that Jesus has broken its power. That's why Jesus took on flesh and blood. So that he might die and defeat death for us. Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Is that your hope today? Do you know that death has no victory? That you need not fear death? Christians are the most blessed and confident of people because we know that Jesus has won the victory over death. But wait, there's more. Paul asked death mockingly, where is your victory? And then he goes on, where is your sting? Now this is... Not describing a mosquito sting or even like a bee sting. No, this describes the sting of a scorpion that brings great pain and even death. So what is the sting of death? What gives death its great pain for you and me? Paul tells us. It's sin. Sin is the sting of death. And sin gets its power from the law. Now what does Paul mean here? He means that the real devastating power of death is unforgiven sin that condemns us. The law speaks out against sinners, condemning sinners for every violation of God's commands, every righteous act left undone, every wicked deed done in thought, word, and action. Before Jesus, we were right to fear death. Because after death comes the judgment. And the judgment of God is all perfect, all seeing, all knowing. Too often, we think too little of sin. We excuse our rebellion against God. We've made idols for ourselves of money, power, fame, comfort we have disobeyed our parents we've held grudges against others we've spoken harshly about others behind their backs we've lied about ourselves we've lied about others we've taken what doesn't belong to us and there will come a day when every person who has ever lived will have to answer for every single thing they have thought said or done does that terrify you Because it should. Imagine if your spouse, your parents, your friends knew everything wrong that you had ever done. But thanks be to God. If you know Jesus Christ by faith, if you are trusting in what he has done to wipe away your sin, you need not fear judgment. Not because you are better than other people, but because Jesus has defeated sin. His victory is mine. His victory is yours. All you have to do is ask. The dying thief on that day did. And Jesus assured him, today you will be with me in paradise. Lastly, there is a final word. A word of exhortation from the resurrection or of urging us on to action. It is found in verse 58. That verse begins with therefore. You know the drill. We have to look back from the therefore to find out what the therefore is Therefore, Because the resurrection is true. And in it, Jesus has defeated death and sin. We are free to live in Jesus. It's like getting an all-expenses-paid vacation. You don't need to make any arrangements. You don't need to worry about the cost. You can just focus on your vacation. Everything is taken care of. And so Paul tells us that we can have hope because of the resurrection. Do you see the way he addresses us? Beloved brothers, he's addressing you here today. This word is meant for you. It goes beyond the original audience. Paul wrote this so that you would read it, so that you would understand it, so that you would have hope from it. He wants you not just to know about the resurrection. He wants you to be changed by the resurrection. Do you see the tense in verse 57? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a present tense. It's not a future tense. It doesn't say, who will give us the victory. It's not a conditional sense, who may give us the victory. Jesus has given you the victory now. You enjoy the victory now because of his resurrection. So what does that mean then for you and for me? Paul tells us, he says, be steadfast. Be immovable. We should live solidly, in place, trusting the Lord, not tossed about by circumstances or by events. What a word for today. Are you tired of pandemics and inflation and wars, injustice? Well, don't be moved by them, Paul says. Be steadfast, immovable, be secure in Jesus. Nothing can harm you. What's the worst that could possibly happen? You could die. And Jesus already has that covered. He has won the victory. Death has actually become gain for the believer. It ushers us into God's presence. That's what Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 1 verse 21 For to me to live is Christ but to die is gain. And not only are you not afraid, you are more effective than ever. All your life is now a testimony for the Lord. Paul says that you will abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Study, work, draw, write, build. Use your gifts to God's glory. And even more, tell others about Jesus, the one who defeated death and sin, the one who brings life. You know your life is not in vain because Jesus has redeemed you. You don't have to gauge the value of your life or your existence. The Lord Jesus Christ has put infinite value on you by purchasing you with His blood. Even the smallest things that you do are valued when they're done in the Lord. Seize life with an eagerness that only those who know that death has been conquered, can. Life is short. Unless Jesus comes back, all of us in this room will die. But that's not the problem. Too many people around us are focused on avoiding death at all costs. They obsess about what they eat. Or how they take care of their bodies. Or how they can extend their lives through medicines or other means. But the sting of death is sin. That's what we must focus on. Because when you go to Jesus to find forgiveness for your sins. You will know that death itself has been defeated. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.